Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old School Grit, New World Ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be able to make friends. I'm just trying to make a little money. My job not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach. So call me. 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me at you, Kramer. Maybe we just can't win when it comes to calming inflation because we don't have the tools to stop it where it's most intractable. Once again, we got a consumer price index report, and it showed a cooler than expected 0.1% increase month over month instead of 0.2% number that Wall Street expected. But core inflation remains stubbornly high. We can take heart in the former, but the latter is what the Fed really cares about. There's a reason the average is starting, started strong, but then started rolling over again. Dow ultimately finishing off 38 points. That's been declining 0.41%. NASDAQ losing 0.85%. The Fed believes it's winning a few inflation battles. Oh, but they think it's losing the war. What's driving all this persistent inflation? The biggest impact is shelters, we saw this morning's release. And I just don't know how the Fed can do much about housing with the extremely blunt instrument that is a rate hike. They've already tightened aggressively, but now longer-term rates, the ones that matter for mortgages, have come down every time they raise the short-rate Fed fund because investors assume the Fed fund boost will cause a recession. Plus, at this moment, I don't think the Fed can do much about the wage inflation number we got last Friday, a 4.2% increase year over year, slightly better than expected, but again, still high enough to give the hawks on the Fed ammunition when they argue for more rate hikes. I do think there's a better way, one that requires patience, something they seem to have run out of just when it's most needed. So what, what has to happen here before the Federal Reserve will stop bringing the pain? The house of pain. What would convince them to turn from malicious hawks into, how about tough but thoughtful barn owls? I'm losing that dove thing. First, the Fed doesn't just want to see housing inflation decelerating with smaller than expected price increases. The Fed wants your home to go down in value. They want your rent to go down. They want more homes built, more apartments built to get get a little supply because supply can indeed lower the price. 
But here's the unfortunate catch-22 of the situation. The Fed's sole method to bring down the cost of shelter, rate hikes, has backfired. In fact, the rate hikes at this point are boosting the price of shelter. How is that possible? Let's say you're a builder who wants to take advantage of high rents in a particular area by putting up apartments. First, you need to get a loan from a bank, right? Most of those loans are from regional banks in order to build that building. But because the Fed and Congress flooded the country with cheap money all at once during the pandemic, and the banks invested that money in longer-term bonds, safe bonds, but longer-term, they're not any longer in a position to lend that money to the developer. The banks got hosed when the Fed tightened so aggressively so quickly. Typically, when banks get in trouble, on the cre- it's on the credit side. It's because they made irresponsible loans, like during the run-up to the housing crisis in 2005, 6, 7. This time, it, the bank screwed up by buying, say, a 10-year piece of good paper, maybe Fed-backed paper, that got clobbered when short rates were, were pushed higher by the Fed, while longer-term bonds, as I mentioned, got crushed. Something that was somewhat unexpected but definitely within the realm of possibility when the Fed started tightening with that kind of alacrity. We know from looking at dozens of regional banks that while they're not as concentrated as the now-failed Silicon Valley Bank, many have a similar bulge in their investments in the wrong part of the curve. These banks bought longer-term bonds, and now they can't sell those bonds without uh, just show realizing a huge loss. So they're under a lot of pressure to hold back on lending until things get sorted out with their depositors. Remember, if you can only have $250,000 in deposit insurance from the FDIC, you're going to move anything in excess of that to a different bank. So it's insured. Those deposit outflows are extremely worrisome to everyone, except for seemingly these people from the Federal Reserve. Yeah, only a couple of Fed officials seem to even care that these regional banks are in trouble. But if the banks aren't lending, that makes a huge difference for the Fed. They aren't paying attention. They aren't seeing what we're seeing. They know nothing! We're now in a situation where it'll be a lot harder to get financing to build that apartment complex. In other words, because the Fed tightened so rapidly after years of easy money, the banks are now in big trouble. And many of them will be much more reluctant to lend uh, people or institutions money to build the apartments we need in order to make it... So rents and prices of homes go down. Consequently, because of their own policies, the Feds make it very difficult to eliminate the worst part of consumer inflation. That's right, housing. They defeated themselves by making it incredibly difficult for developers to get the money they need to build more places. It gets worse. Every time the Fed raises short rates, the longer-term rates, the ones that mortgages are priced off, they go down. And that's because bond buyers are certain that the Fed's going to cause a recession by continually raising rates so high. So the Fed's actually lowering the cost of obtaining a mortgage at this point making it more likely that prospective buyers will bid up the price of residential property. I can't think of, for the life of me, a more counterproductive way to try to cool the housing market, which is what happens to to what is needed to beat inflation. Every rate hike now leads to cheaper mortgages, more borrowing, and higher housing prices. Do you know that we have ruinous bidding wars all over the country? All over. The one positive here is that this will definitely be offset by the carnage at the regional banks. But my point here is that the Fed would be better off. It's just did nothing, at least when it comes to the cost of shelter. All right, now let's talk about wage inflation that the Fed's so disturbed by. We've heard from four federal officials in the last week say that it pretty much doesn't matter what happens with the failed banks. They're not going to stop... 
tightening until wage inflation comes down because wage inflation fuels every other kind of inflation. Now, that last part is actually true. These officials, though, seem oblivious about a key concern. Until the banking crisis, there really was no reason to slow down hiring. Other than the Fed taking up short rates, really, there wasn't anything. This, this economy was really good. There wasn't anything that could slow down wage inflation because there was so much money sloshed around and so much demand for workers of all kinds and so much business that needed attending. We knew this in real time from the CEO of Paychex who came on this show and told us that. Given that Paychex processes payrolls for a huge number of small and medium-sized businesses, at that time, you had to believe things were just on fire and their numbers were gospel. Now, though, in just a few short weeks, the situation has changed entirely. Like I already explained, with the regional banks terrified of going under, they're a lot less likely to loan and businesses are a lot less likely to borrow. So it stands to reason that if we just wait a month, maybe two, we'll see how businesses stopped or at least slowed their hiring pretty dramatically in the wake of the Silicon Valley Bank fiasco. Business people tend to be pretty rational. They'll spend when they think it's good for them. They'll hire when they think it's good for them. They'll borrow when they think it's great. But they won't do any of that if they think things are getting bad. Instead, they'll stop hiring. They'll leave jobs open, and they will start doing what the Fed thinks they won't do. They'll be firing like mad. And listen to me, that's what's coming. It's the natural result of this mini banking crisis, and it's coming regardless of what the Fed says or does. I am telling you that our very big layoffs are looming, and you got to get ready for them. Unfortunately, the Fed seems to believe that executives have already gotten over the banking catastrophe that happened just a few weeks ago, and it's now all systems go. I couldn't disagree with these people more. And for the record, this is my first disagreement with the Fed as a whole. I have been on their side the whole darn way. Here's the bottom line. I have always felt that Jay Powell's a prudent Fed chief who's attuned to the current moment. Okay, there was that little bit in 2018 that I didn't like, but that's all right. That's way behind him. The Fed officials we've heard from lately are changing my mind about what could happen. Fortunately, it's not Powell himself saying these things. Unfortunately, I fear he agrees with the Hawks who want to keep hitting us with more painful rate hikes that are no longer working and are totally unnecessary instead of being the wise owls who know better. I want to go to Ben in North Carolina. Ben. Hey there, Jim. It's uh, your Netflix guy. Do we think Netflix, Netflix is going to continue to sell into the earnings here? It's been slotting the past week. I know it has. I think Netflix people worried about the, uh, the, you know what they're really worried about, whether streaming is dead. That's what I keep hearing. Streaming is dead, streaming is dead, streaming is dead. Those people, I think, will be wrong. I think Netflix, you got to look at as a little longer term. They do a great job, and I am in Netflix's corner. Let's go to Cameron in Florida, please. Cameron. Booyah, Jim. What's up? Wow. Booyah. I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm doing good. I'm, I want to ask about ALB, Apple Merrill. A uh, little, little hit to the stock lately, but is it time to buy? Too speculative. It's too speculative for me. I know that is painful. I want people. I know people want to give you and say, Jim, please let me buy this one. But, you know, when it's batteries, when it's already up a lot, when it's done a lot of things that were very exciting to people, and now I think it's done and passed, I am not going to recommend this stock, which is now on the download. And even though it sells at eight times earnings, to me, that means the earnings are coming down. Inflation might be coming down, but not quick enough for the Fed's liking, which means they're going to bring more pain in the wrong way. Fed, please listen to me. Don't let me push this button. 
Oh man, buddy, tonight, I've spotted an under-the-radar precious metal company with a different model than the big guys. Don't miss my Susan with triple flag, which, by the way, is triple better than Bitcoin. Then big tech has seen its fair share of layoffs of late. But what about the companies that haven't had to lay anybody off? Maybe we should look at the three names that we've spotted that don't need to do mass layoffs to make the numbers. And we're getting an update on the war in Ukraine from drone maker AeroVironment to get a sense of how things are developing overseas. And let me tell you, it's a heck of a lot better than when they were on last when our government didn't know what to do. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Resourceful small business owners know how to get value from the purchases they already make for their businesses each month. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with benefits and features like four times membership rewards points that automatically adapt to your top two eligible spending categories every month on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. So you earn more where your business spends the most. Plus up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible business purchases at select shipping, food delivery, and retail subscription merchants. And with flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business and access to 24-7 support from a business card specialist, you can continue to run your business with confidence. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Enrollment required. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional quality expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Ever since the mini banking crisis began, money has fled the banking system, especially the regional banks, because nobody wants to get stuck with the deposits the next institution to go under. But it's worth thinking about where that cash has gone. A lot of it's been invested in treasuries. A lot went to money market funds. But let's not forget about the oldest safe haven around, the one that we favor since we started Mad Money more than 18 years ago, gold. Yet the precious metals up 11% since Silicon Valley Bank went under, back over $2,000 an ounce, and not far from its all-time high set in August of 2020. 
If you want gold exposure, regular viewers know I like the miners, particularly Barrick Gold. But tonight I've got a new one for you with a different model. It's called Triple Flag Precious Metals. These guys participate in the metals and mining industry via streaming and royalty deals with a focus on gold. Basically, they finance other miners' projects and take a cut of the project profits. It's a relatively safe way to get into the business without all the headaches that come from actually running a mine. This stock's up 21% since the banking crisis started. I wouldn't be surprised if it's got more upside, like, like Franco Nevada, which we recommended to you many, many years ago. So let's take a closer look with Sean Oshmar. He's the, the founder and CEO of Triple Flag Precious Metals to learn more. Mr. Oshmar, welcome to Man Money. And thank you. It's good to uh, be here. Sir, we've always believed in your model because we like diversification. We like to make it so that we get the upside without the downside. And also, by the way, we like it without a lot of the dirtiness because you have a very good ESG ranking. That matters tremendously for a lot of our younger viewers who simply think that mining gold's an awful thing and it's dirty. So why don't you, if you don't mind, stating the case about why it might be better to own triple flag than it would be, uh, let's say, to own a mine shaft somewhere in Arizona. Yeah, it's an important thing that you asked here, and you mentioned two important names. I left uh, Barrick, where I was CFO in 2016, to start this business with money uh, from Elliott Management in New York. And the idea was that the mining sector, I think sometimes is misunderstood, it provides a, a, necess- a necessary thing for society, but it's capital intensive, it takes time, and it has risk. And it, this is a great way with this business model, really, to be able to gain gold exposure we're helping fund miners in the process. And our idea was really to create like a Franco Nevada without the oil and gas, a high growth business which could find the mining sector and get that sort of diversified top line exposure in gold and silver, which really this model provides and gives you this optionality, not just the gold price and silver price, but participation in mine life extension, expansions and things like that. So it's a model that's proven itself and you know it's been a, a good journey for us so far in the last seven years. And to your point, as capital providers, miners have actually been focusing importantly on ESG for a long time. The bad stuff gets the headlines. But if you're a good miner, you have to take care of your local communities and your workforce. So for us as capital providers, that means partnering with the right guys. It means investing alongside them in communities, so things like scholarships and that. And for us as well, um, you know, we uh, invest in carbon offsets. We're carbon neutral in scope one, two, and three. Uh, we do very good due diligence on these projects. And at this stage, we just got our first analytics ratings, and I think we're in the top 1% of any sector that they cover, uh, which we're really happy with. I'm so glad because um, we got involved with the, when we first started the show with a couple of companies, and they just happened to have spills. They had arsenic spills. And I never forgave myself that I actually thought that they, it wasn't their fault, obviously, that I recommended because you know, I ended up with people who did the wrong thing, and other people said, why would I ever want to own a gold company? Now, one of the things that you guys do is that you're a very sought-after financier. There's a lot of money that is needed in gold, and you get to pick and choose, I imagine, because you are a well-funded organization that has great skills in actually examining and determining who's got the best finds. Yeah, look, I I started off um, in the space, to your point, like 30 years ago as an engineer, worked in companies like Beatrice Billiton, Extrata, and then at Barrick. So, you know, the understanding of this industry, the risks, and then building a team that can really invest for the long term and be able to attract the best opportunities has been a large part of our uh, our, our journey so far. 
I think the opportunity in the future, though, is actually more exciting than what we've seen because of things like the energy transition. And you'll see that more than 70% of our answers actually come from polymetallics and copper mines, for example, or PGM mines or lead zinc mines. These are small byproducts. We offer a competitive cost of funding. And these are things that are going to help fuel the energy transition of the future. So it's naturally symbiotic. It's now, a great I, way to accumulate a portfolio. I don't want to put you on the spot, but one of the reasons why I can tell you I like gold is because it's fungible, it's tangible. You can take it anywhere. Look, you can put it in your coat if you're really in the run. I, some people feel like that. and I, 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 History says that's not a bad way to think. But there's another uh, offset, which is people want to own crypto. And crypto, I think, is the exact opposite of what Triple Flag is. I want, in your words, to be able to just explain whether you think that, say, um, $30,000 in Bitcoin is safer than $30,000 in Triple Flag. I think in the short term, gold is real intangible and it's been around for thousands of years as a store of value. I remember watching one of your previous shows where you made the point that in the first sign of real trouble, not only have we seen the collapse of a Ponzi scheme in that area, but what we've really seen is that crypto is a risk asset. It is not a store of value. It is not an insurance policy uh, during tough times, which gold has traditionally you know, been. And so in the times that we're in, we're seeing the role that gold can play, and crypto just doesn't really do that. Now, I also, because I'm allowed to have mutual funds, have, uh, you can have a mutual fund for the seniors and a mutual fund for the juniors of the gold miners. Um, can you explain why Triple Flag may be a, uh, a more steady way to invest than, say, uh, one of those kinds of mutual funds? Yeah, so you know, it was one of the appeals that um, <clears throat> I think working with Elliot on this, part of this is positioning. So we've looked to invest large sums, typically one to 500 million in long life, um, all bodies that are in mines that are producing. You'll see about 80% of our value in line with the biggest in the space is linked to producing assets that have good prospectivity. The best way to um, you know, have a new mine is next to an existing one because miners will always invest in continuing to expand their mines or extend their mines if there's economic mineralization. And our contracts, we participate. Some of these things will go on for certainly beyond my natural life. And our shareholders will benefit from that. We've seen this already. Where if you own, a, you know, you said you're a fan of gold, you own, a, you, own a, you own gold, there's a carrying cost associated, you don't get a dividend, which we pay. Uh, we've grown 21% year on year in actual ounces since 2017, and we started from nothing. And so at this point, we've got growth uh, embedded in the portfolio going from last year, we've had six years of consecutive records. We did 85,000 ounces or gold equivalent ounces. We'll do 100 to 115 this year. I average beyond that is 140. We pay a dividend, you've got diversification in line with the best in the sector. And that's something you, it's not easy to achieve, I think, with alternatives. So you have this 90% cash margin business with the ability to reinvest and really to participate over time in these very diverse portfolios. It's a great way to participate in precious metals. Well, I am so glad you came on, and people should know that it's much more liquid stocks listed here. They made a big acquisition, which I really liked. And this is the kind of investment, as opposed to crypto, that I believe has much more staying power. And by the way, let's say it. It is an investment, and crypto isn't. I want to thank you so much to Sean Oxmarty's founder and CEO of Triple Flag Precious Metals. Really good, very clear deck if you want to learn more about it. This is a solid company. Thank you so much for coming on Mad Money, sir. Jim, thank you. Stay with me. Coming up. 
Not all big tech is downsizing. What Silicon Valley stocks are going workforce first? Stick with Kramer. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? With almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise. Dedicated to shaping brighter futures for our students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S. An outproven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Wall Street's fallen in love with nearly every bloated tech company that finally decides to slim down. Look at the tremendous 122% gain in my favorite meta since they started firing tons of people back in November. Or the 41% gain in Salesforce since their 10% workforce reduction was announced in early January. Now, do not get me wrong. I totally see the appeal. The market wants to see earnings. And for tons of tech outfits, the best way to become profitable is just through mass layoffs. But I also don't want to ignore the opposite group, the tech companies that haven't had to fire scores of employees, not because they're undisciplined, simply because their businesses are already in great shape. As much as the market laps up these mass layoffs, no CEO wants to fire thousands of people. I mean, Mark Benioff from Salesforce sure doesn't, because it means they, well, let's just say they spent too much money, or some people say they screwed up. I know Wall Street adores companies that improve themselves, but let's not neglect companies that are already doing great in the process. As a matter of fact, let's celebrate them. So let me give you three. Let's call them the three A's, AAA, which, by the way, I keep AAA because it's really good, the toe, the toe function, and also I don't know how to fix a tire. Let's start with Adobe, because they've made it crystal clear they're not going to do mass company-wide layoffs, and they're still hiring for critical roles. In fact, they just opened a new office tower in San Jose. Now, you might think Adobe's foolish to go against the tech zeitgeist, but consider where they're coming from. Last month, the digital media marketing software titan reported a truly magnificent quarter, a comfortable top and bottom line beat, great guidance for the current quarter, and management raising their full-year forecast on mad money. I loved it. Adobe had 9% sales growth last quarter, and they're looking for high single-digit to low double-digit growth. I think they're going to get the latter this quarter, too, along with 12 to 14% earnings growth for the full year. Steady growth, nice profitability. What's that to like? As CFO Dan Dunn explained in an interview with Forbes, Adobe doesn't need to do mass layoffs because while other tech companies took their pandemic-related sales booms for granted, Adobe didn't get over its skis in terms of hiring an unusual amount of people. In other words, they didn't blow it up in the first place, so they didn't need to slim down. Of course, the lack of major layoffs at Adobe isn't a reason to buy the stock on its own, uh, even though it's a nice sign of confidence. 
But there's a lot to be excited about here. Adobe's got this new artificial intelligence-enabled tools like Firefly for graphic design. Now, I've seen this thing. It's a very new, easy-to-use, and empowering product, particularly for small, medium-sized businesses that want to look like the giant guys. It could take a lot of money down the line. Maybe the biggest factor here is Adobe's planned $20 billion acquisition of Figma, which might end up being blocked by the Justice Department. Now, as much as I believe in Adobe's management and think Figma is key to Adobe going to the next level, I believe you win here either way, because Wall Street's not a fan of this deal. It's viewed as a colossal overpay. If the regulators stop it, I wouldn't be surprised if Adobe stock goes higher, especially because many think that Adobe can develop what it needs on its own because it is such a creative company. I have faith in Shantanu and Orion either way. Who else is pledging not to fire tons of people? Well, how about a company that already did a long time ago and knows what it's doing? And that company is Airbnb. This one's a longtime Kramer fave, even from when it came public. And the stock hasn't always gotten the respect it deserves. Last year got beaten up with every other relatively recent IPO. But back in December, the stock finally bottomed. Since then, it's rebounded hard. It's currently up 32% year to date. Just like Adobe, they keep saying they aren't planning to fire tons of people here. Now, we last spoke with Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky back in November 1. He was widely, mis- widely misinterpreted was on the show. It was right after he had delivered a quarter that was widely panned. That was a mistake, one that sent the stock down 13% in a single session the next day. The booking volumes and cash flow came in a tad light. Some people didn't like the forecast for the fourth quarter. They weren't listening closely. When we spoke with Chesky, he told us an incredibly optimistic story. A huge part of that was the fact that Airbnb didn't have to do massive layoffs because they'd already gone through a round of very painful jobs cuts way back in the spring of 2020 when the pandemic first hit. And they've been very prudent and careful about hiring new people ever since, all with the goal of becoming even more lucrative. Listen to this. And we've stayed disciplined. Jim, you know this, but we had a really difficult 2020 and we had to pull back a lot of expenses. We got really disciplined. And when the economy was going very well, we did not forget the lessons from the pandemic. And we've stayed disciplined. We will remain disciplined. I went over those layoffs closely with Chesky. I mean, this guy said, listen, I think I had to let go a huge amount. They went through each line, each line. Everyone else was saying, ah, don't worry, it's going to go. It's going to blow over. He knew better. And ever since then, he's run lean and mean and tough. Chesky explained that Airbnb is using this period where it already has lots of money in the bank and keeps posting strong cash flows as an opportunity to obtain top quality talent from other tech firms that are letting people go. And by the way, they also are developing by far the most seriously terrific and easy to use app that even a guy like me can rent a place wherever I heck want to go and do it without. I mean, like, I just use this like every other person. If you saw that interview and you bought the stock into the 13% dip the next day, yes, what? You got an incredible gain. Sure enough, when Airbnb reported again in mid February, Chesky did everything he said he would and more. A phenomenal set of results, tremendous guidance for both the current quarter and the full year. In retrospect, the fact that these guys were doing selective hiring late last year, not mass layoffs, that was one hint that the numbers were going to be terrific. I think the same concept holds here, especially because the stock's recently pulled back. It's only at 112 bucks, and it's changed. It's practically below where it was trading before reported that great quarter two months ago. That's crazy. I see this going back up to here in relatively short period of time. Finally, let's talk about one. Oh, you're probably thinking, is he ever going to mention again? He hasn't mentioned it in the last 15 seconds. That's Apple. All right. The only mega cap tech thing that has yet to announce any sorts of mass layoffs. Hmm, is that because they're the best company in the world? 
We're thinking about, sorry, NVIDIA, well, just for today. There have been some targeted smaller-scale layoffs at Apple just last week that cut some jobs in the corporate retail teams. But really, there hasn't been anything close to the huge firings we've seen at Microsoft, Alphabet, uh, or Amazon, to say nothing of Nestle. Hey, by the way, uh, tomorrow morning on Squawk, they have Brian, they, they have uh, Andy Jassy from Amazon. And you're going to have to listen, because we've got our fingers crossed that they're going to get rational and stop losing big money on certain parts of the business. I, Alexa's probably listening right now. I'm hurting her feelings. Because like Adobe and Airbnb, Apple never really went on an insane hiring binge during the pandemic. Plus, the company's doing just fine financially. Sure, their sales and earnings are likely to be flat this year, if not down suddenly. But they're also sitting on a mountain of cash, $165 billion in cash, cash equivalents and marketable securities, with nearly $100 billion in free cash flow expected this year. Listen, if you need a reason to buy Apple, I can give you 20 and the fact that the company hasn't done mass layoffs will be on the lower portion of that thing behind things like the reopening of China. The two stores are about to open in India, which I think probably going to have lines around the block. And, of course, uh, the uh, service revenue stream and their installed base of more than two billion active users, whom, by the way, with two billion active devices, who I am telling you that if we can figure out the lifetime value of, uh, of, of this you realize this thing is worth a lot more in selling. It doesn't hurt that Apple feels no need to fire a bunch of people in order to juice the numbers. The numbers don't need no juicing. Yet another reason why I say own Apple, don't trade it. Bottom line, as much as tech stocks are being rewarded for mass layoffs, and a good reason, let's not forget the AAA. That's right, Adobe, Airbnb, and Apple. Three incredibly well-run companies that don't need to trim the bloat because they never got bloated in the first place. Scott in Pennsylvania. Scott. Hey, how you doing, Jim? Thanks for taking my call. I'm trying to uh, wrap my head around uh, some stuff that's going on with Hewlett Packard. Uh, yeah. The way I'm looking at it, in October of 2018, they had one and a half billion shares outstanding. In October of 22, they had 979 million shares outstanding. In October of 18. Uh, looks like their common equity was minus $639 million. And in October of 22, uh, they're negative $2,918,000,000. And right. uh, I'm just under trying to wrap my head around... Uh, why well, you got to look at the free cash flow. Shares. It's a free cash, free cash flow situation. Free cash flow is very good. They've been buying back stock because they just generate a huge amount of cash. Now, my problem, of course, with HP is the whole industry is in a real downturn. But they actually been doing better than the rest of the industry. Uh, Enrico Dolores is doing a very good job buying back stock, growing well. I, it's okay. I prefer Apple. Why do I need HP if I can have Apple? Anybody here? Do I need HP if I? No. Everyone agrees with me. Remember, just let, just because Wall Street is celebrating tech companies that are slimming down, you know what we want? We run companies that are making a lot of money. I think that's a better place to look for stocks. Much more made money, including my excuse with Air Environment. Hey, listen, they finally got those contracts in Ukraine that I've been telling our government to give them. I'm learning more about the state of defense with the company's top brass. And I am sick of hearing the issue supply chain. So tonight, I'm pulling back the curtain. I'm going to tell you what supply chain really is, and it's not what you think. And of course, all your calls, rapid fire, tonight's edition of the lightning round. So stay with Kramer. As much as we want Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine to end as soon as possible, this ongoing war remains a tremendous opportunity for American defense contractors to know what they're doing. 
That includes smaller players like Air Environment, which specializes in drones, including loitering missile systems. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, think kamikaze drones that fly around, search for target, and blow themselves up to take it out. The lethal drones in that case. I've been recommending Air Environment for a while. And others have started figuring it out, with a stock up nearly 25% year-to-date and trading at their highest level in nearly a year, thanks in part to a strong quarter last month and a big analyst push last week. So can it keep climbing? Let's check in with, with Wahid Nawabi. He is the chairman and CEO of Air Environment. to get a better read on the situation. Mr. Wabi, welcome back to Mad Money. Great to be with you, Jim. All right, first, tell us how things are going since we saw you last. Well, Jim, you called it right the several times that I've been on your show before. Uh, the market is starting to re- recognize the story. Our backlog is at record level. We break in, uh, we've broken a record backlog that we had before. Seven of our different drones and products are in use in Ukraine. Wow. Uh, Switchblade 300, Switchblade 600, Puma AE, Puma LE, or ground robots for clearing land when they take over the space land that the Russians are leaving behind. And then, of course, our Quantex Recon. And the latest tranche of the presidential drawdown included the Jump 20, the Group 3 UAV, which is going to be a game changer for Ukraine. This is a drone that carries much more payload. It's uh, fueled and it flies for 14 plus hours and it could go a lot more distances. And it's also hybrid VTOL, which means it doesn't require runway. It's going to be a big, big, significant boost to the Ukrainian military's offensive and defensive capability. Right, let's start with the simple ones first. Uh, when you were on last, I was saying that as much as I like Lockheed, uh, that the uh, Javelin seemed like an inefficient and also, I think, to somewhat disconcerting way for soldiers to be able to attack tanks. They seemed almost like bazookas in World War II. Your method is a lot more potent and a lot safer. Tell us about it. Absolutely. It's a, a vastly superior capability. Uh, Javelin can shoot and take a target out from two to three to four kilometers. Switchblade 600 has the same warhead as Javelin but it can take a target out from 30, 40, 50, up to 90 kilometers away. You could fly for almost an hour, and you could do that on day and night without actually identifying the target to begin with. So Javelin is a far inferior capability when it comes to this type of a conflict, but it has its own position in the market. Right. There are certain missions that Javelin is good for, and there's a lot of missions that, G- that Switchblade 600 and 300 could do much, much better. But should a Russian mechanized column going into Ukraine fear what air environment has? I would tell you that if Ukraine had 1,000 to 2,000 more switchblades, the outcome and the position of the Ukrainian would be far better and superior than it is today. All right, let's talk about uh, a drone. Can it be linked to powerful howitzers uh, that can then destroy whole columns of, uh, of invading Russian soldiers? Absolutely, and it's actually, that's precisely what the Ukrainians are doing today. They're using our Puma AEs and Puma LEs to find targets with an intelligence surveillance uh, reconnaissance UAV, the drone, which is the Pumas. And once they find the target, they're telling the howitzer operators where to fire and even sweetening the target. So U.S. wants to make sure that every time we fire a howitzer or any of our missiles, that it's effective and it takes out a target. So it actually improves the efficiency and effectiveness of these weapon systems by using drones such as Puma and Jump 20 to be able to sweeten the target, but also after you fire and you attack a target, battle damage assessment after the target is hit is extremely important. Do we take out the entire target? Do we damage it enough? Or do we we have to do more? So all of this is happening with most of our drones. Our drones are the workhorse and the backbone of this fight, and that's why the Ukrainian military 
and the government, including the commander of the war from the Ukrainian generals, specifically has been asking for thousands more. Uh, when you showed me how to work one, I, I'm not proficient in things, but I felt like I could do it. These are not weapons that require whole battalions of U.S. soldiers to teach them how to use them. Absolutely not. The whole training is very short, few days, and an 18-year-old soldier can learn it quickly and go to operation within a matter of days. We have plenty of capacity to train more. We have deployed our, our trainers within the U.S. military, both domestically and abroad, and we stand ready to support them. Scaling of the training and empowerment of the Ukrainian military is not a bottleneck. How many do you think have been launched and what's the success rate? So uh, directly, we just had some folks that work directly with the Ukrainians and been in country and uh, have had direct engagements. The efficacy of Switchblade is extremely high, very, very high. Uh, the numbers that I was quoted recently was well above 80 percent. It's just 80 percent mission, 80, over 80 percent effectiveness of the entire missions for the Ukraine today, according to Ukrainians leaders themselves. This is directly coming from them. And the other thing is that this is the weapon system that there's no other alternative. There aren't too many things that they, could, they, could, they have that can do the job instead of it. So when they become depleted, they really have to be resupplied. All right, so a switchblade, uh, millions of dollars per switchblade? Oh, no. Uh, switchblade 300 is in tens of thousands, and the switchblade 600 is equivalent to a javelin. Well, then why do we have all this worry among particularly some of the Republican Party saying that it's costing too much? It sounds like that these kinds of weapons are very effective and they don't cost as much. They really don't. They're very comparable to equivalent weapons with far, far superior capability and operational uh, effectiveness. And you now have no supply chain problems? How many can you produce if the government calls you and says, we need everything that you can make right now? Well, I've got at least one factory that can make 4,000 a year for one shift. I can double the shift and double the production, and I already have a second factory up. And so I do not have a capacity bottleneck for making the switchblades. However, the warhead is not made by us, and it's the same warhead as Javelin. So that has some constraints. However, there's plenty of it, and the U.S. government can decide to take some from Javelins and provide it to switchblades, and they have done that uh, intentionally certain times are, when they see the need. Are there other countries that are buying your product and also helping Ukraine with them? Absolutely. So, as you know, uh, U.S. government has given us approval to export this to several countries, right. up to 20-plus countries. Four of them have already publicly gone uh, that are getting them or in the process of getting them, including Lithuania, U.K., uh, obviously Ukraine, and then, of course, France. There are several other countries who need these, and we, I believe that in the next several years, the demand for this product and the popularity of this capability is going to continue to grow and be more robust. Well, I am so glad. I was very concerned and very upset when you were on last. I could not believe that the United States was not uh, blocking, not trying to stop the Russians with your, with your weapons, the safest and the most effective. I am glad to see the United States has woken up to what our environment does. Thank you very, very much, Jim, and we're pleased, and we we'll continue to work on it. We have a great, great company, great products, and you I sure think do. it's the right solution for you the You sure president. do. Yes. All right, I want to thank Wahid Nawabi. He is the chairman and president of Air Environment. That's AVAV, a stock I have liked very long. I need you to look at this company, okay? This company is doing the right thing, and it's also doing the right thing for shareholders. May have money's back after the break. 
Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. Tonight, I dedicate this lightning round to the one and only Katie Spencer. She's heart and soul mad money till the end of time. Today is her last day here, and we wish her the best of luck. And we will always miss her. And now it is time. It is time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Let's start with Lamar in Colorado. Lamar. Hey, Kramer. Greetings from Boulder, Colorado. How you doing? Oh, God, I love Boulder so much. My sister was out there. Fantastic. And Don, too. What's happening? Looking at those mountains right now. Hey, listen, uh, with uh, Dodge may have a big hit on their hands with this new Ram, uh, uh, while the other automakers are suffering from, you know, the premature electrification, right. <laughs> I wanted to um, see what your thoughts are on Stellantis. I like Solantis very much. You know, this is a family show. I'll just say bye, bye, bye. Let's go to Kenneth in Georgia. Kenneth. <laughs> Kenneth, you're up. Kramer. Kenneth? Yeah. Hey, hey, buddy, what's up? I'm doing good. I've got in this stock about $24, and ever since then it's traded backwards. Good already. What's the deal? I've been against this stock for so long, it's like it's painful because the guy who runs is terrific. But I'm unrelenting. Uh, I do think at $5, you can roll the dice, but it is a dice roll. We're not done. We're going to Mike in Indiana. Could be the governor for all I know, ex-governor. Mike in Indiana. Mike. Hi, Jim. Uh, I'm looking at a nice IPO that uh, I heard about in early 2020, in the teens and low 20s, and now it's Past 90 and jostling around in there. Uh, yeah. Has a P.E. of only 71. A P.E. Oh, of huh. 71. Is the fun okay. older for Lattice Semiconductor? Oh, no. Lattice is really good. No, it's not. And on any discount, I want to be a buyer. That's a very, very good company. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, what's got Kramer ready to scream? The CEO supply chain chatter that just won't cease. More next. If one more company tells me that it still has supply chain problems, I'm going to scream. It's become this amorphous, totally acceptable excuse for why nothing gets done and everything's late and earnings targets are constantly missed. So tonight I want to pull back the curtain on the supply chain issue and explain what the real issue is. People, we just don't have enough of them and they aren't skilled at what needs to be done to deliver finished product. Last Friday we got this not farm payroll report uh, which showed an ever-so-slight increase in labor force participation. Now, that could be the start of ending the so-called supply chain problem, but it's not going to put it to bed because companies have been reluctant to really explain what's actually going on here. Allow me to explain for them. When the pandemic first broke out, a lot of people stopped going to work and still got paid. 
Many of them were in their late 50s or early 60s. Many worked in jobs that were pretty much taken for granted. They may have worked with their hands in repetitive tasks. Others might have been supervisors who made sure the trains ran on time. Hey, so others literally made the rails the trains need to run on. These people learned some incredibly valuable things while they were being furloughed. They learned they hated their jobs. They had no desire to go back, and many of them still haven't. They, not the absence or lack of parts or the lack of semiconductors, are the true supply chain constraints. It all comes back to the notion that people have realized that they're long on money and short on time. The wake-up call that we got from a near-death experience or the loss of a relative to COVID has caused such an existential reevaluation that a leave or a sabbatical has led to a buyout and a no return. There's just not enough time left in life to go back to that job you didn't like. When you saved enough money, you go do something else. As the pandemic wound down, many employers just assumed that these newfound retirees would soon realize their savings were running out and so I'd come right back to work. What they didn't understand is that many workers, well, they didn't actually leave the workforce. They just left the jobs they had, often taking less pay for positions that are more fulfilling or at least less horrible. Maybe they wanted to move from the wrench to the paintbrush or from the stamper to the baker. These are the broken links in the supply chain that have been hard to replace, not the part from China that they tell you, not the device from Taiwan that they make up. The long on money, short on time escapees turned out to be far more indispensable than their former employers thought because their skills were honed over many years and they had mastery over their crafts. Mastery that turns out to be a lot more difficult to teach than management realized. Many executives figured that these forays and other more fulfilling, even if less lucrative professions, would be fleeting, so they kept the jobs open for them. Many months went by where hope was part of the non hiring equation. Only after a sizable chunk of time passed did these employers begin to advertise for these very specialized positions. Then when new workers were hired, they had to be taught by people who had relatively little training experience because the longtime vets were already gone. Now these rookie trainees are at last beginning to get up to speed with the tasks at hand. They're There turns out to be, though, no technological substitute can make it go faster. So if you're making a vehicle or an airplane or an elevator or an air conditioner, the part you needed is finally getting to you because the worker making it has been trained and is now proficient to do so. The good news, once a so-called supply chain issue is taken care of, it stays fixed. But the bad news, there are just too many jobs going begging two years after the pandemic because time and travel are worth a lot more than the money that people who quit these positions would have made if they just decided that lucrative drudgery is worth it. But in many cases, with the clock ticking, it just isn't. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.